Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Well, it's Christmas time of year, and I love some of the Christmas colors and even ties I see there, Brother Don, so that's good. Um, If you uh, have your Bibles, I'm starting a new series today called The Christmas Story Includes You. And that's, that's really what gets me excited about Christmas. It's a, it's a story of God's love and God's hope, and it can potentially include all of us. I mean, it's for all of us, but you've got to receive the gift of God to be uh, a part of it. And we'll talk about that. But the Christmas story includes you. I was reading in my quiet time this week. I've been reading through the book of Romans, and I was finishing that up. And as I read Romans 15 this week, I read a statement in the Bible that you ever have those moments you're reading something, you're like, man, that's good. Who put that there? Well, God put that there. You know, I've read this before. Why why am I just now noticing it now? But in Romans 15, verse 8 and part of verse 9, Paul says something that's so pregnant with meaning. Uh, it, It encapsulizes how the Christmas story includes you, that it's for everybody. In Romans 15 verse 8, Paul the apostle says, for I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised. Now the circumcised are the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. Who's the fathers? The patriarchs. Matter of fact, this morning our Sunday school lesson was about Moses and God at the burning bush and how God said, I am the, the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? And so all that's wrapped up in, in this statement that he came to confirm the promises to the fathers and that beautiful little word, and so that Gentiles, that's everybody that's not a Jew, so guess what, we're we're that too. So that Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. And so the Christmas story includes you. Isn't that good? And what you're going to learn in this series is that God has sent His Son, and it's, it's the greatest gift that God's ever given to the world, ever given to mankind. And if you are willing to receive that gift then you're included in the story. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. You know, I love surprise parties. Well, most of the time. I was a little caught off guard when when I turned 40 and my wife surprised me. That was a surprise party. And then when we got married, she was uh, actually 19 and then turned uh, 21. And then uh, her 21st birthday, we did something really special. And I've never lied so much in all my life. You know, my mother-in-law and I, who are you talking to? Nobody. What you doing? Nothing. You know, we kept it a secret. It almost killed us, but we did, right? But surprise parties can be, you know, well, it can be stressful. But have you ever thought about how heaven will be like a surprise party? And when the day comes and that appointed time arrives and we're all there, you just might be surprised. Who else is there? Um, God's grace is so much greater than our sin. And heaven's going to include anyone that's willing to put their trust and faith in in Jesus. Now, 
We're going to be in two books of the Bible today. We're going to be in Genesis, but not yet. But I want to start in Matthew chapter 1, okay? And Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy, the, the, the family tree, uh, the family history of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, I'm not going to read through all that because I know a lot of people consider that dull, dry reading. But I want to read about three verses of it. And I want to point out something that maybe you haven't noticed before. And it all has to do with the Christmas story includes you. In Matthew 1, verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He, he mentions those right out the gate because Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish people and David was a a king, not only a king, he was the second king that Israel ever had, but he was God's choice to be king. And so to mention that Jesus, his lineage comes from Abraham, he's one of the Jews, he's of Israel. And to mention that he comes from David, he's got royalty in his veins. That's significant. But then it begins to begin with Abraham moving forward. There in verse 2, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then it goes on. Now, what's unusual is that if you study genealogies in the Bible, it always focuses on the father, not the mother. You know, this one begat, this one begat, this one begat, that one, and so on. Um, you get your name from your father. And so it's very unusual when women are named in Jewish genealogies. And the fact that a woman is mentioned in a Jewish genealogy, that must mean something. It, it, it should be significant. There, there has to be some kind of story there. And that's what I want to look at today is Tamar. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So Judah had other kids, but it was, it was the two that he fathered by Tamar. Out of those two, Perez was the one that kept the lineage going that leads ultimately to Jesus. Well, what's interesting is sometimes the Bible will surprise you at how real, raw, and authentic it really is. We're going to look at a story today in God's Word that's not very flattering. And parents, I'm just going to read it, and those of you that understand things, you, you'll know what I'm talking about, and we'll just roll on. We'll make this PG. But look, if you will, in Genesis 38, and we're going to look at the story of what happened between Judah and Tamar that includes her in the family history, the family tree, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 38, beginning in verse 1, it says, At that time Judah left his brothers and settled near, Adol near an Adolamite named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua, and he took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Saleh. So she had three sons 
um, Judah's wife, um, Shua did. And um, what I want to point out as we kind of talk through this story is you already see something that's going in the wrong direction. And you know what that is? Notice it says there in verse 2 that Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite. He married a Canaanite woman. Now, please hear me. I know that the I know that society today is charged when it comes to racism and politics and this and that and the other. But what I want to show you here in the next few moments is some verses that makes a clear distinction between marrying someone who is in the faith and someone who is outside the faith. Okay? And the the discerning guideline is not someone's race or ethnicity, but it's whether or not they are in the faith, they belong to the people of God, or they're outside the faith and they don't belong to the people of God. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Let, let's go back. Well, I want to put this in context. Go back to Genesis 24, okay? Remember that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Genesis 24, we have an awesome story where Abraham wants to make an arranged marriage for his son Isaac, okay? Isaac was his uh, son he didn't expect to have. He was the promised son that God said, I'm going to give you a son. Uh, And Abraham waited 25 years, 25 years waiting on God's promise. And when he's 100 years old, Sarah is 90, they have Isaac. Now, fast forward, Isaac's a young man. Sarah has died. And Abraham's looking around going, there's a few things I've still got to do, and I want my son Isaac to have, not only be married, but I want him to have a godly woman, okay? And and it's a long story. I'm just going to read one verse. But in Genesis 24, if you want to read that story sometime on your own, you can. It's an awesome story. But I just want to read verse 3, Genesis 24, 3. Abraham sends his servant. He says, I'm going to have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Remember, Moses was a stranger in a strange land. Moses had left every... I mean, not Moses, Abraham, I'm sorry. Abraham had left everything he knew. Abraham had left everything he knew to follow the call of God. Leave everything you know behind and go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham heard the word of God and obeyed it, and he went to a land that God showed him. And now God says, I'm going to give you this land. Well, God, how are you going to give me this land when I don't have any descendants? Oh, you're going to have an heir. It's going to come from your own body, you know? I think he took that literally and said, well, what about Sarah? Sarah couldn't conceive, and they come up with their own plan, which is Hagar, the maidservant. They had Ishmael. That wasn't God's plan. That was man trying to help God out. Ultimately, 25 years go by, and God uh, allows Sarah to conceive at the age of 90, and Abraham and Sarah have a son. His name is Isaac. His name means laughter, because when God announced a year beforehand when he showed up, that's a great story too, and tells Abraham, your wife Sarah, a year from now, will bear a son, and she hears it and laughs. And God says, you laughed. And she goes, no, I didn't. He said, oh, yes, you did. And when they named the son... It's Isaac, which means laughter. God's got a great sense of humor, by the way, okay? And so here's the point. So Isaac is a special gift from God. And as a result, as a result, um, God's got plans for Isaac. 
And so now Isaac is a young man. Sarah has gone to be with the Lord. And Abraham's thinking, I, I got to find a godly woman for, for my boy. But I'm not going to find it here. Why? Because among these people, they don't know God. They worship idols. Uh, God was God, God removed a lot of the Canaanites when you know you know or he he ultimately removed the Canaanites from the land generations later when Moses and then Joshua you know took the land. Um, go to Genesis twenty-seven for a minute. Let's jump a generation. So so Abraham sends his servant to go find a godly woman for his boy Isaac, but she can't be a Canaanite. She's got to be you know, in the faith, not outside the faith. Go to the next generation. Isaac, he's got that godly woman. Her name's Rebecca. And they have twins. And the day comes that, you know, God's hand, uh, his plan, his promise is going to go to Jacob. Of the two boys, Jacob was the one that God's promise was going to continue to follow. And now it's the mom. Now it's Rebecca. And here's what she says to Isaac. In Genesis 27, verse 46, Rebecca, talking to her husband Isaac, says, I am sick of my life because of these Hittite girls. If Jacob marries someone from around here like these Hittite girls, what good is my life? Because Esau had already married one. And now it's Jacob's turn. And she's like, I don't want someone outside of the faith. I want someone in the people of God. Then in Genesis 28, verse 1, Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl. It's not because of race. It's not because of ethnicity. It's because they worship idols and not the true and living God. And that's a principle you see in Scripture. The application for us would be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Don't become partners with those who do not believe. And you can read the rest of that. Uh, I think the old King James would say, don't be unequally yoked. Um, I want to tell you something, young people. Now, adults, if this applies to you, then if the shoe fits, wear it, okay? But I'm talking to the young people this morning. Young people, let God be your matchmaker. I I'm serious. God's in the matchmaking business. I mean, when, when, when Adam was created... And he had a job to do. He was busy, okay? And he's naming all these animals, and he's doing a great job with what God gave him to do. But as every time an animal came by, they had a mate. Every time they had a mate, he didn't find anybody. And the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. And the next thing you know, what does God do? He's got a sense of humor. Hey, God, it's time for you to go to sleep. I'm at work here. You'll see in just a minute. And as... As Adam falls asleep, God takes what? A rib from him and makes Eve. And if I could time travel, that's number one right there, Devin. If I could time travel, I want to go back to the moment when Adam saw Eve and said, Woohoo! Right? <laughs> Come on now. And so if you, if you do time travel, are there certain you know, segments of history I would love to see? That's one of them, okay? But here's what I want to, want to say. God is in the matchmaking business. And his number one criteria for putting two people together is do you walk with me? Do you know me? He wants the people of God to marry people of God. He doesn't want you to marry an unbeliever.
Then let's look a little bit deeper in the story. Read uh, verse 6, the Genesis 38, verse 6. Judah um, got, got a wife for Ur. Now, again, you know, back in those times and those days in that culture, um, parents arranged marriages. Just let that sink in for a minute, okay? You know, when, when we first moved here and we were living on the north side of town, um, one of our neighbors next door from Kuwait and from what other country? I don't remember now. And they had an arranged marriage. It was really neat just to meet somebody, flesh and blood, your next door neighbor, and they tell you the story. But that's a, that's a story for another day. But that happens. That's a common practice in other parts of the world. And so Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, those of you that are quick thinking go, are you going where you just, let's read the Bible, okay? Now, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Now, I can't add anything to that. What made him evil? I don't know. What did he do? I have no idea. All I know is that when God looked at Ur, he says, you're an evil man. Obviously, you don't know me. What you're doing is wrong. I'm taking you out. And he did, okay? God is God. He has the right to do what God can only do. Then Judah said to his next son, Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. Now, that might sound strange to us, but let me jump for a moment to another scripture and the law of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, to be specific. It says, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her so that they can produce offspring and keep things you know, going, generations going. That might sound odd to us. That was the way it was, and that's why... Judah took Onan and said, you need to perform your, your, your duty and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan, it says, knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Wow. So Onan just wanted the benefits, not the responsibilities. We'll keep it that way. And as a result, he, was, he did not fulfill the purpose, the duty of what the law required. And God looked at that and said, man, that is, that is not right. That's wrong. And the Lord took him as well, put him to death. Now, at this point, picture yourself as Judah. What's next? You've only got one more son left, and you've lost two. Do you really want to take a chance or a risk? You see, according to the custom of the times, if a man does not have a son over 10 years old, then he, the father, could perform the marriage obligation. If he chose not to, the woman's declared a widow, and she's free to marry again. She has her life back. Judah is afraid of losing his third and last son. 
And he could have set Tamar free, but he chose not to. Instead, he sends her back home to live as a widow, and he he promises her that when my third son gets old enough, then you can have him and continue the family line. Meanwhile, her life is on this long pause. She can't really move forward. She's just waiting. And so, here's what happens. There in verse 11, Judah says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Notice that Judah made a promise. I'll take care of you. When my third son's old enough, we'll get all this straightened out. But you know what Judah's doing? He's buying time. His son is young, but he doesn't want to lose a third son. He buys time. He procrastinates. He puts it off. Maybe we can turn the page and forget this ever happened, right? But look what happens next, a very unexpected turn of events. And to me, this lets you know just how real the Bible is because the Bible tells you the whole story. It doesn't sugarcoat things. There in uh, verse 12 and following, it says, After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Harim the Adullamite went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear a sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had grown up, or Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. So a long time has passed, long enough for her to know that Judah has reneged on his promise. He's not going to do what he said he would do. And now, right or wrong, good or bad, she's about to take matters into her own hands. It says that when Judah saw her, referring to Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute. She was on the roadside. She was dressed a certain way, had her face veiled or covered says, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? And he said, I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord. And the staff in your hand, that's no small things. Think about the things that you have in your pocket, like your keys, the ring on your finger, your phone that I left down there, those kinds of things. And so she says, I want those things. And so he does. He gave them to her and slept with her, and the Bible says she became pregnant by him. She got up and left then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road in Nahum? There's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. 
So the Adelamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there's been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. At this point, Judah's like, let's just drop it and pretend it never happened. And in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I hope this never comes up, right? Look what happens next. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. You know, when he heard the words, acting like a prostitute, that's clue number one, right? He didn't catch it. Bring her out, he said, and let her be burned to death. Wow. Now, this is a guy that made a promise that he hasn't kept, and now he's thinking she has broken her promise, and I'm going to hold her feet to the fire. Let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. Wow. Now that's an object lesson, isn't it? And she added... Examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Now, what I'm about to read next, many Bible scholars say this is the first public confession of sin. And they may be right, because it is in the book of Genesis. I know the previous 37 chapters, and they very well may be right. Judah recognized them and said, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shaleah, and he did not know her intimately again. I think other translations say, she's more righteous than I. And everybody would have to say, yep. And And he says, look, I didn't keep my promise. That's what he's basically saying when he says, she's more righteous than I, because I did not give her to my son Shaleah. He has no one to blame but himself. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back, and out came his brother. And she said, what a breakout you made for yourself. And he was named Perez. And the other one was named Zerah. What an unexpected turn of events. Now, let's process this for a minute. You might be thinking, what just happened? (laughs) Right? And to make it short and sweet, I'll say it this way. She tricked Judah into performing the duties that his son should have because he promised it. The, The rest of the story is they have twins, Perez and Zerah, and Perez is the one that the lineage of David and Jesus come from. You know, what's funny is my mother-in-law loves genealogy, and what I've learned from her through the years is that if that's your sort of thing, if you just love genealogy, you have to be a little careful. You know, I remember years ago when I was in college, um, 1995, 
And uh, we still had family reunions back then. Okay, I know for those of you that are young, you're going 19 what? But uh, we still had family reunions back then. And I remember going to my share of them. And I met a guy from Oklahoma with my last name and uh, older gentleman, great guy, get to know him. And he's been doing research on our family history for years. And probably one of the best things I, I ever bought, Devin, because, you know, it's, it's family history. And I spent 50 bucks and I bought from him because he had multiples of them, binders of Meg's family of North America. And it's that thick. And it traces the generations of the Meg's family 150 plus years back. And uh, what I'm saying is you have to be careful when you dig into genealogies. Because when you dig into genealogy and family history, sometimes you dig up bones that people try to keep buried, if you know what I mean. And this could easily be one of those bones that you want to keep buried. Everybody knows it happened, and nobody wants to say it out loud. So let's just keep moving forward. Nothing to see here, okay? And that's Tamar. What happened between her and Judah? Because Judah didn't keep his word. And yet, look what happens. It leads to the lineage of King David and ultimately Jesus. So what's the takeaway from this? I'm going to give you three things to think about. What does Tamar's, Tamar, excuse me, what does Tamar's story teach us about God? Number one, God is willing to forgive our sin. Isn't that good? God is willing to forgive our sin. She, remember when Ur married her, she was not of the people of God. She was not a woman of faith. She was not a believer. Um, and so here is Tamar, and she wants to do the right thing. She wants the family line to continue. Uh, she wants promises made to be promises kept. And even though we look at it today and go, oh, that's horrible. Uh, at the time, in her shoes, what she was doing, she was... Uh, not in a place to defend herself. Yes, she used deceptive means. Here's what I'm trying to say. The Bible does not condemn her, but it doesn't condone it, okay? It simply just tells the story, this is what happened, and yet she is forgiven by God. You know, God is willing to forgive all our sin. Did you know that? I was telling in Sunday school this morning, I remember years ago being at a Hearts of Fire a conference, it's a youth conference they normally have in Gatlinburg in uh, November. And uh, they had had some really cool speakers and some really, you know, well-known Christian bands. And then all of a sudden, this one guy trots out with uh, um, old blue jeans and he, he leads music at a church in Sevierville and he sings the uh, It Is Well With My Soul, just a traditional hymn. And all of a sudden, you have like five to 7,000 teenagers all in one place raising their hands to God, singing praise to God. And we sang all three stanzas of the hymn, especially that part where it says that he forgives all my sin, not, not in part, but the whole. And that's what I want to say is God is willing to forgive all our sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I tell you something? That when you come to God 
and you confess your sin to Him, not only is He faithful and righteous to forgive you, but He also cleanses you. Oh man, that's good. It's one thing to be pardoned, but then to make me feel clean on the inside, that my, my sins have been, you know, like scarlet, and now they're white as snow, as Isaiah the prophet said. What an awesome God we have that can, that can pardon sin and then cleanse us from the results of it. What an awesome God we have. There's a second thing we can learn from this story of Tamar that teaches us about God, and that is God can work through our mess. If there's one thing I want you to hear me today, I'm not condoning this uh, at all, the behavior that she did, but what I'm saying is God can work through your mess. There's a lot of things that happen in a sinful, fallen, wicked world. There are things that happen that we don't want to talk about in this venue because it's shameful or it's embarrassing and we don't want to be judged. And I get all of that, okay? But what I want you to hear me is this. Don't miss this. God can forgive you and God can work through your mess. He can. Even when you make a mess of your life, when you make a mess of a situation, we serve an awesome God, an almighty God, a loving God, and a redemptive God. And He can work in your mess, and He can work through your mess. He can make your mess a message. He can turn your test into a testimony. He can do all of that because that's the kind of God He is. Amen? Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. This verse came to mind when I was thinking about this point, God working through our mess. Because here's the thing. When it comes to making a mess, usually the last thing we want to do is go to God. What, what the default mechanism is, I've got to run from God. Now, it goes back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve did the one thing that God told them not to do in the garden, as soon as God showed up, Hey, Adam, where are you? They were hiding. They heard God coming, and all they could think of is, we got to get out of here, and they ran from God. They hid from God. And you know what? Human nature, people still do that today. The one place they should go, they should go to God first. He's the last person they want to see. They're running from Him. And yet, here's a promise from God's Word I want to highlight to you. It's Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been uh, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That's the kind of God we have. He came and lived and walked among us. And he went through temptations just like we did. But he never, ever sinned. And yet that gives him the right to become the sinless, stainless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He sacrifices himself so that we can come to God. And now he says that throne is a throne of grace. And you can come boldly and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. That's the kind of God we have.
he can work through your mess. And one last thing, what does tomorrow's story teach us about God? Well, God's willing to forgive our sin. God can work through our mess. And number three, God invites us into his story. (laughs) I love that, don't you? God invites us into his story. As a result of this promise that was made and not kept, but oddly, strangely fulfilled, ultimately God worked through it. And Tamar is included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Wow. You and I are invited into God's story. Jesus said these words in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All I can tell you is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the one. He is the only one that can save you. He is the only one that can pardon your sin. He is the only one that can cleanse you from the inside out. He really is the Savior of the world. It's why we celebrate uh, Christmas. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Messiah. It's about the one that God sent in the fullness of time into this world. He walked among us. He lived a sinless life. He died a death he didn't deserve. He took upon himself our sin, sorrow, and shame. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers the gift. It's a gift of eternal life. You can't earn it, and you and I will never deserve it. But he offers that gift to you and I. And if you receive the gift of God, you too can be included in the Christmas story. And that's why I love Christmas. And so I encourage you this morning to think about what God is saying. And my prayer is that you, if you're not a part of the people of God, that you'll do that today. Let's all stand. Musicians, come. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this time to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Lord, we're going to have an invitation. And Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each and every heart. Lord, I pray for your will to be done in this time of response. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each person. Lord, may we not live another day without you in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would recognize the gift of God. And Lord, I pray that we would humbly come to you before it's everlasting too late. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.